morning and welcome to Rising. We have another spectacular show today, Robbie. Who do we got? Just, just spectacular. Just super, super so spectacular. spectacular. We're so excited about it because Alimia Lauren and Amy Tarkanian will be with us to discuss the effort to clear hundreds of homeless encampments across New York City. And then, of course, Kim Iverson will join us later this morning. Now, we've been discussing Hunter Biden's legal troubles, and it looks like it's really heating up because even most of the mainstream media has entered the chat. The Washington Post, who's only a year late to the party, finally admitting Hunter's laptop is real just yesterday, though they say that the vast majority of data and nearly 129,000 emails it contained could not be verified by the Post to security experts who reviewed the data. After they published that story, the Post published this one, detailing Hunter's multi-million dollar business deals with a Chinese energy company that came to fruition back in 2017. Quote, while many aspects of Hunter Biden's financial arrangements with CEFC China Energy have been previously reported and were included in a Republican-led Senate report from 2020, the Post review confirmed many of the key details and found additional documents showing Biden family interactions with Chinese executives. They go on to reveal that CEFC and its executives paid entities controlled by Hunter Biden and his uncle $4.8 million. However, they say they did not find evidence, quote, the big guy benefited from the transactions, though they do have an interesting, the big guy being, being the president, the current Joe president, Biden. because he's in an email with Bob Alinsky where it says like 10% for the big guy. And there is evidence, that, I mean, there, it, there's lots of circumstantial evidence that the Big guys referring to Biden. They haven't proven right. that the money changed hands, but certainly people involved in that deal, which is a different one, believed that uh, Biden, this was between the time he was vice president, president was going to be involved. And he, according to Bob Alinsky, met with uh, him and Hunter and, and Jim Biden, his uncle. But what they did find is that uh, Hunter asked the building manager, after getting these millions of dollars in 2017, to make some changes to the way that his office was uh, constructed and to also add additional, to make additional keys for new partners that he, he referred to them as partners. And his partners were Joe and Jill Biden, uh, um, among a couple of others. And so the business actually made keys for Joe Biden for this business that was being funded by this Chinese money. Uh, in, in classic fashion, with all of these stories, then, then it says Hunter actually never picked up the keys. <laughs> Keys were made, and he asked for new signage, new signage, but he didn't pick, he didn't pick it up. He just didn't follow through. Wow. And, then, and, then it, and then they also report that then they, he was clashing with the manager because he was bringing uh, people in through the side door. Uh, and it turns out one of them was a, a woman who then later sued him for paternity successfully. Right. right. And so, it, so you have this, this combination of just, all, messy. just, just messy chaos messy and chaos. real corruption. Real corruption. Yeah, yeah and, and Joe Biden, you know, we don't, we're not fully aware uh, what the extent is of his knowledge or involvement. But Joe Biden, you have to remember, Joe Biden thought he was out, out right. of the political game. Mm -hmm. He thought he was done. He, he chose very, uh, very publicly not to run for president in 2016, right. to step aside, to, the writing was on the wall that, that the party wanted Hillary. Hillary wanted Hillary. It was her time. And Obama he, wanted Hillary. Right. So he was so his he, own president. He decided yeah. not to put up a fight and he was yeah. going to go gently into that good night. Yeah. And you know what? There's always there's temptation to make a to, to make a buck if you're done anyway. And he made a fortune from University of Pennsylvania. Like sure. Millions. Right. right? right. For yeah. teaching like or maybe 800,000 or something for teaching like 
just Half normal normal salaries for, yes. for what was he teaching the football team <laughs> Penn football basketball team um, uh, yeah so right it, so yes yeah, so if you think of Biden's mindset at that point Joe Biden's mindset as post politics right the way that we do this in the U.S. is you you cash in on your yep your name and you, yep. you don't do any work no. You know, you don't, and you don't, Golden you, don't parachute. A, you don't need a key. You're not showing up to the office. But, you, right, you get on a conference call. Right. You allow your name to be used to right. grease a transaction. Now, Trump didn't, had no need to, th- he, he'd do that still right. as president. Yes. There, there's no, he doesn't need to, he doesn't see that difference. It's just, but uh, it's not any what, normal political actor waits yeah. till they're done and then, I mean, not, right. not, not at all. And, and it's, and it's not, it's not what about us to laugh at. The, the asymmetry here, like the same people who yeah. were so furious at the corruption of Hunter Biden, like, oh, it's fine that Jared Kushner, while right. working for the White House, was shaking down like like shakes right. around the Middle East, right. there's, money for his business. And- yeah, it's not. It, it, you can't get around the what about right. here. Yes. There is wild corruption in, in among the, the children in both families. So yeah. <laughs> that's just the truth. Anyway, journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted in response. Just effing amazing. Now the Washington Post, 10 days after the New York Times, admits that the laptop genuine and uses them in their reporting, yet not one corrupt outlet has retracted the Russian disinformation lie that Biden initially banked this story on during campaign debates. However, the fact checkers over at MSNBC have found no evidence of this. Here's Mika Brzezinski after discussing Trump's claims that Hunter received money from Russian oligarch Yelena Baterina. He goes on to repeat, I think Putin now would be willing to probably give that answer. I'm sure he knows. Trump's claims are false. We fact-checked them earlier in the show. Oh, are you put at ease? (laughs) Even CNN (laughs) is half-heartedly covering the story. Did a write-up yesterday headlined, The Federal Investigation of Hunter Biden Heats Up, while a legal analyst on the show said there's a real chance Hunter could be indicted over the foreign business dealings. Yeah, I, I can see this going with the media in a Republicans pounce on Hunter Biden direction, which is the, something they do when uh, something I, I've often noticed and other people on the right have noticed that when uh, when the essentially the thrust of the Republican criticism is correct, the media frames it as how Republicans are using this to get right. ahead rather than about how they're just correct right. about the thing. Well, that's how the media knows how to cover Particularly, right. the political media knows how to cover any issue. Right. Like, what's its what's its effect? On what's its effect race. on the horse race, and and how are the different parties mm-hmm. using it to their own particular advantage? Because then you don't have to get into kind of the nuts and bolts of the issue question. Glenn, of course, Glenn and I. I don't know if I've told you this. Glenn and I actually started reporting together on this on the story that led to him leaving uh, the Intercept eventually. I wanted to I wanted to take it in a more China direction. He wanted to take it in the Ukraine direction. So we're like, all right, you do your piece, I'll do my piece, and I'm working on my piece. And the next thing I hear is, uh, oh, Glenn quit. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it worked out. Worked out for Glenn. He's he's done well. He's since. killing it. He's yeah. Done well since then. I, I ended the up show all the time. I did it. I ended up publishing my uh, my piece, which I, which I think holds up pretty well. And one of the things that I looked at was the way that the Trump campaign kept inserting itself unhelpfully into the, into the reporting of it and undermining its own story. And you even see that in this Washington Post story. They, they say, you know, in 2020, we reached out to 
uh, Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon to try to get a copy of the hard drive. And they, the Post says they either ignored or rebuffed us. Right. And, and, you off, and you often saw, like, so the Wall Street Journal in 2020 was working on a story on all of this. And if the journal had done a piece, then you might have seen the reaction from the media be slightly different, though I think there was still going to be pressure uh, you know, to, to like dampen it down. But it would be harder if it was in the Wall Street Journal. And Giuliani gets, got frustrated that the Post hadn't, didn't have their piece out yet, so he you know, runs over to the New York Post. The, the Journal didn't. That he, right, that the Journal that he hadn't put their piece out yet. And then so the, the Post... Right. Now, and is it fair that the Post doesn't have as much credibility as the Wall Street Journal? I don't know. We can decide whether or not that's fair, but it's a fact. And so with his impatience and, and then with his refusal to share the information with the... That's what I don't understand. Like you had this hard drive. Like, why, why, not, right. why not share it? And, and then that gives you even more reason than if they don't report on it to say, look, you even have the hard drive. But to not share the, inf- the documents... Sure. And then say, why aren't you reporting on the documents? However, not, none of that. Yeah, Ju- right. Giuliani like shady is character, yeah. Bannon sh- shady character. But it, it's still, despite that, it's still it's incredible, and it, it just becomes yeah. more incredible now that years after the, right. the and, extent to which right. the the messaging was: don't read this. Right. You are this is a lie. You will absorb this lie and spread it like a disease or something right. that you heard from. Uh, and then, right, Biden was able to, to appeal to authority. He was be able to say, mm-hmm. look at all the, look at all the experts, people. the yeah. analysts the, the, who, who are saying this is disinformation. I don't even have to say it. Just listen to them. Right. And, right. and the behavior by, you know, by the tech companies. This is the best case for, for the, the, the badness, the, the wrongness right. of content moderation right. policies is how Facebook and Twitter handled the story. They handled it in a shamefully... Right. Bad way, in in part because some of the people in key decision making roles, as far as I can tell, were themselves Democratic Party activists who yeah. had been in Democratic Absolutely administrations right. and had yeah. easily transitioned into content moderation in a very concerning way. And their reasoning what was false. They said these. They said this violates our hacked materials. Right. <laughs> what wasn't actually hacked, unless unless you have the broadest possible definition of in which hacked, all like, journalism is right because okay the, the, the repair guy doesn't have right. like legitimate access and so therefore but that's not what they mean by right hackers and, but even though i didn't have access to back to the other point but even though i didn't have access to the hard drive i could still compare what was public and make phone calls to confirm that okay this email says that this event happened mm-hmm. it was like a firefighters event actually and that this is in my story so i called the firefighters it's like did this event happen did Joe Biden speak at this event? Uh, did this Russian person, you know, c- come to the event? Like, there was reporting that could be done based on what was already public, plus the Daily Caller's kind of corroborating. I think it was Devin Archer or somebody else's mm-hmm. email. So even though the Post and others can say, look, we didn't have the hard drive, still, they, were, they, they still could have done more reporting on it. Yeah. And didn't. And that was an editorial choice that they're now paying for. And now here we are. Yeah. Well, coming up next, we'll tell you what's on our radars. Stick around. Robbie, what's on your radar? A classic mask mandate radar for you all. I know you've missed them. So throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, Washington, D.C. remained one of the most aggressively pro-masking municipalities in the country. Brought back the mask mandate twice for the Delta and Omicron waves. I was 
thrilled about that. Not. Mayor Muriel Bowser finally rescinded the mandate, hopefully for good, beginning on March 1st, though masks remained, in comp remained compulsory for many school kids, commuters, and library visitors. Across the country, formal government-mandated masking is mostly over, with air travel being a notable exception. But that doesn't mean mask mandates are dead and gone. On the contrary, many college campuses still have mask mandates in place, even though their student populations are almost entirely vaccinated and at low risk of negative COVID-19 health outcomes anyway. George Washington University, for instance, which is located just down the street in Washington, D.C., still has a universal indoor mask mandate in place and has no plans to get rid of it. This despite the fact that the university requires students to be vaccinated and boosted and test them every other week. Jack Elbaum, a sophomore at GWU, attempted to press the administration for more details about why the mask mandate wasn't going away. He did not receive a satisfying response. I was first directed to the university's previous statements and second informed that GW has not changed its COVID-19 restrictions because of, quote, our recent spring break and the rise of the BA2 variant. He wrote in a piece for The Federalist. To put it bluntly, this is not sufficient justification. An email to me, Elbaum said that we're at a point in the pandemic where the country is getting back to normal. This is true blue states, true in red states, and even most college campuses. Yet GW has decided to keep draconian COVID-19 restrictions in place. This wouldn't be good policy anywhere, but least of all on a college campus full of young people who are required to be both vaccinated and boosted. In practical terms, COVID-19 poses zero threat to the GW community, yet the administration keeps policies in place that ensure the virus is on people's minds every day." End quote. So GWU, though, is hardly alone. Connecticut College still requires indoor masking unless a student is eating or drinking, using the bathroom or in their room with the door closed. Masks are still mandatory in the gym. They are even required while outdoors if students are in close proximity to each other. New York University forces students to wear masks unless act actively eating or drinking or unless they are shut away in their dorm rooms. The university is even picky about what kind of masks the students wear. No bandanas, no scarves, no cloth masks. The University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, similarly picky about masks and isn't planning to get rid of the mandate until April 11th. UCLA plans to relax its mandatory indoor masking requirements April 11th for most students, faculty, and staff who are up to date with their COVID vaccinations, including boosters, although indoor masking remains strongly recommended, wrote the university. Until that date, please continue to follow the guidance below. Many college campuses that have rescinded the mask mandate still require masks in the classroom. That includes Harvard University and my own alma mater, University of Michigan. Quote, I feel like the classroom requirement is burdensome on a lot of students, Mason Hinawi, a Michigan student, told the Michigan Daily. COVID-19 has been a cloak over everyone's social lives. I feel like it's time for things to start moving in the right direction here. The administration apparently disagrees. Now, I've previously remarked that given how colleges are handling COVID-19, you'd think otherwise healthy 19-year-olds are the most at-risk population for serious coronavirus disease. We're practically bubble-wrapping college students. Why? There's no reason for it. And now my big concern is how their norms on campus that are now entrenched, like they're still wearing masks. They're still required to wear masks. And we see how college students' values come to dominate elite liberal institutions. We've seen that with the free speech stuff. Uh, you know, these are the same students who are, you know, shouting down speakers they don't like at Yale and other places recently who assert the right that if they feel unsafe, that that feeling of unsafety trumps any uh, 
trumps whatever right you might have or whatever concern you might have. And now we're feeding into this idea of just over-the-top, ridiculous protections for safety. These, are, these people are required to be vaccinated and boosted and tested and still masked. Do you think that's what's driving it, the, the, the kind of helicopter, like, paternalistic I, I think I, what, yeah, I'm forced where, to conclude that's a strong yeah. possibility. I, if someone has a different theory, I will, I, you know, I don't have any data to suggest that's what it is. But this is the most, this already was the most kind of helicoptered environment, elite right. liberal colleges. It's already the most, you know, safe. Students who wind up at elite liberal colleges. Right. Demand yeah. this kind of, you know, overprotection, over hypersensitivity that's, that, that goes into the rules of the place, that the administration then voice upon them because that's what they want. So I, I have to suspect that it, it must be, it might be related. Yeah. That they're, that they're getting, I mean, I, I would lose my mind. I would rise up. <laughs> you still want the students to have to be masked in the gym in, unless they're eating or unless they, you know, if they want to have a friend over, you're supposed to, you're, you're supposed to mask and leave the door open. I mean, is this creating like, are there secret societies on campuses of people who are no longer following this? It seems oh, to me it's, yeah, it's pretty sure. militantly enforced still, as far as I can tell. I still hear stories. I still get reports. I still get notes from, from people with awareness on campuses of, of, of this snitch culture, this tremendous snitch culture oh. going on that the RAs say, if you find out about people. Like the guy's got his nose out. Yeah, gonna, you're supposed to tell yeah. people. Which I, which I would believe from having you know lived in D.C. throughout the pandemic, which is also yes. a snitch culture That's sort true. of place. It's, I've been snitched on for not following the rules. Yes, GW is a particular place yeah. because it's it's where like the class presidents go, you know who who want yeah. like internships and, oh, and the worst the worst sort. jobs on Capitol Hill. The worst sort. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they can't wait until after college to do their you know their time on Capitol Hill. They have to do it like as nineteen year olds. Yeah. yeah, it's just. If, and now that they've heard from Madison Cawthorn of what, of what awaits them, <laughs> the, uh, like. the, uh, yeah, uh, which uh, he retracted. Right, McCarthy he retracted, was not happy about that. He retracted it all. So funny because he's talking to him like he's like a kid, like I'm yeah. really disappointed in you, son. Was basically what he said. And like, you have to earn back my trust, and and which is totally he's he's a congressman. But he had this great line. He's like the Constitution established the age for which he's eligible to be a congressman, but it's still up to him. To show the maturity required, and that he didn't like just keep the meeting private. He just gave like a public right. He absolutely verbatim readout was just like it had a it had a vaguely like after school special mm-hmm. quality to it. It did like a like a like a Boy Meets World episode or like a family a Full House or Family Values or one of those Family yeah. Matters. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. With the, with the sad music playing, you know, with the, the disappointment. Anyway, that's a different... And different. his new story is that he saw the staffer maybe from 100 yards away in a parking garage doing a, a key bump. A staffer, yeah. yeah. It's like, okay. Maybe it was a GW student. And in order to do a key bump, you'd have to have you'd your have mask You'd have to remove your, your mask. Your you'd have to... Yeah, yeah. That's... Uh, maybe that's what it is. I, I'm, I, it's anti-key bump. Although if, all, if anyone could come up with a mask that was configured, <laughs> that you could still wear it and be protected and also snort cocaine... <laughs> Probably be a GW student. <laughs> Sorry, I, mean, I don't mean to malign the, the great. <laughs> that's not maligning. No, right. I, yeah, I'm not that's, a, that's right, celebrating the, yeah. the individualist ingenuity uh, of them. Yeah, individualist uh, culture. But uh, anyway, I, I I think it's so ridiculous, and I, I can't believe these these things are not gone for for young people at least. Yeah. I can understand maybe if there ne- still needs to be 
masking rules in hospitals or in old folks' homes, but colleges, schools? And GW's, and GW's right in a city. It's like, so if they go into like the subway or the Whole Foods or whatever that's like basically on their campus, do different rules apply to them yeah. than apply yeah. to the residents of the city? And, it, and they've all said, they also, we were just going to follow, we're just doing what the CDC says. The CDC says, basically, you can unmask. They said, well, no, just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not listening to that. We're not doing what the CDC says. We're doing what the CDC used to say. Follow the science, guys. Huh. Terrible. Unless you don't like the science. Well, I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next. Ryan, what's on your radar? So unless you were wandering aimlessly around Capitol Hill and accidentally stumbled into a committee room, you probably didn't know that Congress held a hearing on Medicare for All this week. That's not an accident. The media simply doesn't cover legislation that has no shot of becoming law, and this week's hearing was no different. The Medicare for All bill sponsored by Pramila Jayapal currently has 121 co-sponsors, meaning that if it were put up for a vote today, it would lose by about 313 to 122. Or maybe they'd pick up a few of the non-co-sponsors, but either way, it would be a bloodbath. But still, a hearing can be a chance to make your case to the public if you can get the public's attention. And Katie Porter did just that with some creative questioning. What percentage of revenue do private insurance companies spend on administrative costs? You know, between about 17 to 18% of, of spending in private insurance plans. So if I pay my insurance company $100, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 dollars go to administrative costs. What about Medicare? What do they spend on administrative costs? You know, that range is about you know three to five, three to five percent. Three to five, three to five percent. About three to five percent, right here. And if we look at just billing costs, just billing and insurance costs, Medicare is at one percent. Wait, private companies spend. 17 times more on administrative costs than Medicare? What are private insurance companies spending on that Medicare is not? Does Medicare spend hundreds of millions of dollars on television advertisements like private insurance does? Dr. Collins? No. Does Medicare spend millions of dollars on stock buybacks to shareholders? No. Does Medicare um, spend money on marketing? Private insurance likes to put its name on stadiums and PGA tournaments. Is there a Medicare arena? No. Does Medicare spend $23 million on executive pay like private insurance companies do? No. We know how much it costs to run a high-quality health insurance program. $1. Out of $100, Research shows that Medicare spends 1.1% on administrative costs. We spend $4 trillion on health care every year. We could save $200 billion on administrative costs with Medicare for All. And those savings, they could go to expand Medicare. We could spend that money to let patients see dentists. We could let, spend that money to let patients pay for hearing aids, to help older adults afford eyeglasses, to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, to finally pay mental health professionals for the work they do. Instead, all this money is wasted. We're not talking about paying to keep the lights on in operating rooms or improving the quality of care. All this money is used to, through pay big insurance to push paper. It's death by 200 billion paper cuts. 
Now, all of that's true, yet while half the Democratic Party is still pushing for Medicare for all, Medicare itself is being rapidly privatized while nobody's looking. A report this month from the typically staid Medicare Payment Advisory Commission was flagged by longtime healthcare reporter Merrill Guzner in his excellent Substack Goos News. The program insurers are using to privatize Medicare is called Medicare Advantage. And through a variety of gimmicks, they lure seniors into plans, often by offering dental or eyeglass coverage, though how good that coverage is, seniors only find out later. Then they use a trick known as upcoding to bilk the federal government. It may have cost taxpayers up to $20 billion last year. The Payment Advisory Commission is sounding the alarm warning, quote, a major overhaul of Medicare Advantage policies is urgently needed, unquote. Medicare Advantage now covers 46% of Medicare beneficiaries, meaning the program is almost half privatized, and it grew by 10% each of the last three years. The commission warned that if this, if this trajectory continues, it will, quote, further worsen Medicare's fiscal sustainability. It also creates a massively well-funded lobby to keep the program privatized and prevents any further gains in public insurance. The report states bluntly that since their inception in 1985, quote, private plans in the aggregate have never reduced savings for Medicare, unquote. Now, none of this is new. I wrote an expose on several Medicare Advantage companies ripping seniors off back in 2009. And then when Democrats finally made some modest reforms to it through Obamacare because it saved the government money, Republicans accused them of slashing Medicare. That's a pretty neat rhetorical trick there. If you'll recall, that was a huge theme of the Tea Party back in 2010, keep your government hands off my Medicare. And so private hands are looting it instead. Mm. And so uh, how does a libertarian think about the Medicare versus private insurance I mean, contradictions. I have a hard time believing that the government-run program has fewer administrative costs than the privately-run program, but presumably those details weren't being made up it's out of, but I'm sure it's a scale. confusing issue and it's hard to know for sure, but... You well, know, the ins- if you th- it makes sense if you think about the incentives, because the, the private insurance company's incentive is to spend as little money on care as possible. So like if you say that you need, you know, a knee replacement, the private insurance company's job is to be like, are you sure? How's, how's that knee really feel? Maybe, maybe, maybe wait right. like six months. Well, but, the, say, but like, the, the government run system has no incentive Either way, it has no, well, it has so no incentive to that, check any. It doesn't matter how much is being spent. That no one is going to be like, "Oh, can we really?" That's the that's how do we the prioritize that's the flip side this? risk, yeah. and those don't get classified under yeah. administrative costs because they'll say, "Okay, you met these qualifications. Boom, you need a knee replacement. You get a knee replacement. Right. Here's how much we pay." And Medicare is also good at because they have the, uh, all of this buying power even though they're banned from using it on drugs, right. but they can well, use it. Well, and I, right. I, I agree with you on right. that. They should be able they, to But they can use it with orthopedics. And so they say, yeah. look, we pay, I don't know, whatever they pay, $12,000 for a knee replacement, take it or leave it. And so the doctors then are like, okay, fine. I'd rather charge a private insurance company $20,000, uh, but all I can get from Medicare is this, so I'll do it for this. And that's why you know, a right. decent number of doctors now don't, don't, won't take Medicare. and they're, they're moving to these concierge, just private models. But you're right. So you may end up spending more sometimes because you're being more right. generous with care. 
but the private insurance, that's why the administrative costs Do you have a so problem high. with the concierge models? I, I feel like people who are willing to pay for better health care, health insurance programs should be able to if they have the resources to pay for them. I, right. My problem is the uh, people who are uninsured and don't have access. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's, that's where I reserve my anger yeah. for. To have a world where some people have these concierge doctors uh, just at their beck and call while other people can't even get basic care is infuriating. But I, I put yeah more of my energy on the, on the side of the people who can't get there, can't get mm-hmm. basic care. I just, I, I, I worry that the government, does the government always know what's better, what's better? Even with Obamacare, you know, you would hear, I, I reported some stories of, of people who lost their coverage because their plan was no longer, go- was not considered good enough by Obamacare, even though they were perfectly happy with it and they thought it worked for them. And does the federal government really know what is the right choice for each and every individual family? That's what I... Right. And so, and so uh, Obamacare, speaking of which, we have this element here. Uh, in the American Rescue Plan, they took, you know, Obamacare had sucked for tons of people because premiums were high, deductibles were high, were high the American Rescue Plan basically filled, up, filled in a lot of those gaps. Like if, if you're in a marketplace plan, you're getting almost completely subsidized. That, that expires basically in October. <laughs> so, and around that time, so no, it actually technically expires in November, but in October is when people are going to get their notices mm. of what their, be speaker in the house, what, what their rate increases are going to be and what, you know, what their out-of-pocket yeah. costs is going to be. And it's going to go from all close to zero, which has been a pretty good year from that perspective, to all of a sudden back to 10, 12,000 a year or something obscene that people can't afford. Genius is over at the Democratic Party timing that for October. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Best friend of electing more Republicans. No, it's interesting, interesting but, radar. I, mean, yeah, I don't know, ex- yeah, you know, I don't know exactly yeah. what, how I feel about all these things. I, I, my, you know, limited involvement in the healthcare sector has, has me most worried about the disguising of prices and how people have no idea what they're paying for. Oh, and, 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 because of the nature of insurance and, and, you know, even the private system has all these kinds of government. Right. It's yeah. just such no, a it's, mess they're like that a, I don't like know. They're like a government. And that would yeah. be my answer to your question, that yeah. nobody's perfect at doing this, but a for-profit insurance company is going to put people through even more of a runaround mm-hmm. trying to get care uh, than, than a government-run plan is. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Our rising panel will join us coming up next. At the direction of Mayor Eric Adams, New York City has cleared over 230 of the city's homeless encampments in the past 12 days. However, of those displaced, only five people agreed to seek new housing at a shelter. The new mayor's push to, quote, keep New Yorkers safe and our streets clean started earlier this year when police similarly began clearing out homeless people sheltering in the subway system. Gothamist reports that roughly 48,000 people live in New York City shelters compared to 2,400 living on the streets. Last year, 640 people died while the homeless in New York City, the high, while homeless in New York City, the highest number of deaths recorded since tracking began in 2006 when 162 deaths were reported. Drug-related deaths were the leading cause, spiking 81% from 2020. Our rising panel joins us now to weigh in. Alimi Alorn is a New York City public defender for legal aid and political commentator, and Amy Tarkanian is a Republican strategist and former chairwoman of the Nevada State GOP. Welcome to you both. Good morning. 
Yeah, thanks for being with us. So, Alimi, I, I see problems often in, in the approach to, obviously, we want to find the homeless population, shelters, you know, get them into safer environments. Uh, but practically, you know, isn't it a really Herculean task to accomplish that, given how resistant uh, many of them are to entering shelters or, or other kinds of accommodations? It's not just that they're resistant, it's that they're not able to. Beyond the fact that many of the shelters are completely full, they have stringent uh, requirements that leave the homeless people unable to stay there. They tend to need mailing addresses and all kinds of different requirements that a homeless person is not going to have. Or they need uh, several visits, uh, an entire interview process, and it takes months for them to get into shelter. So imagine trying to keep in contact with people who are literally leaving in the street and expecting them to, to jump through all these hurdles. Additionally, they lose trust in the system, right? That a Department of Homeless Services, uh, believe it or not, has been advised never to provide them with uh, basic necessities like socks and food and blankets because uh, the statement is that it'll discourage them from seeking shelter. But what it really does is discourage their trust and faith in the system to even enter the shelters. On top of the fact that the people who are in the shelters are subjected to violence, sexual assault, being arrested by NYPD and funneled in and out of the system. But what's important for me is Eric Adams doesn't seem to understand that homeless people are New Yorkers and he is responsible for their well-being too. Since he's taken office, he's been committed against waging war against them. The first thing he did was line the subway stations with more NYPD officers to forcibly remove homeless people from the stations, thus forcing them onto the street. And now he's destroying these encampments, which will leave them physically displaced. So it's not just that people aren't accepting shelter, it's just it's that it's not an option, which is something he knows because he says, oh, he can't force people in the shelters. They legally can't do that. Oh, this, there's a system in place, but he won't leave the encampment. So he's taking them out of the subway He's taking them off the street, so where do they go? And Amy, do, do, as Republicans are kind of con also confronting this, this crisis, how are they responding? Is it, is it purely like we, we, cops need more funding, or is there some grappling within the Republican Party, Republican coalition, of how to actually resolve some of these, uh, some of these problems kind of more structurally? Well, the majority of the Republicans that I have spoken to in regards to this topic uh, is pretty similar. And I, I think actually would be across the board, uh, despite party affiliation, is uh, just like she said, homeless people, they're still people. They're still citizens of the area that they reside. And whether if it be under a roof or under a cardboard box roof, they're still human beings. And I don't see a problem with people who are making that choice to be homeless, because let's be real, there are people who do make that choice. As long as they're not doing drugs, um, as long as they aren't, you know, sleeping in front of a place of business where you have to, you know, step over, or as long as they're not defecating on the streets, um, you know, I don't have a problem if that's the way that they choose to live. Here in Nevada, we are actually ranked ninth. Um, in the nation for homelessness. And you can actually find, it's really sad, um, hundreds if not thousands of people that live in an underground city in the sewage underneath the Las Vegas Strip. And that's also not a way for people to live. And I think what we need to do, and I would hope that Mayor Adams is going to go this route, is put more money maybe towards mental health facilities. And also just like what she said, um, my panelist, uh, I used to sit on a board called Lutheran Social Services. And what their goal was, was to uh, help individuals become citizens once again that 
were able to get a job, were able to track down their birth certificate so that way they can also get a, an ID. So that way they can learn how to function once again and hopefully even get off if there is an addiction or if there's depression or any kind of uh, medical issue that may be uh, needed to attend to. And I think we need to start seeing more of those facilities, but then also compile them maybe all into one area so that way it's like a one-stop shop because obviously these people don't have transportation unless it's public so you can't kick them off of public transportation if that's where they're headed in order to get help well right the challenge alimi look i have become more cognizant of uh, the problems of of having an out of control homeless population of tents springing up everywhere of you know violent scuffles confrontations between people who are on drugs or having other problems or having mental illness problems and in, in theory I would support or, or you know want to deal with these things in a non criminal way in a non punitive way in a get resources kind of way but it, it seems like a really daunting challenge to to get a lot of these people to be on board with with those treatment options that they that they will they a significant number choose no they choose the the socially undesirable outcome and then we're just well what what can we do i don't i don't know that i'm not persuaded at all that like lack of funding or lack of of will is is the issue it, it's just not working uh I think that this is a popular misconception uh, that homeless people do not want help or resources. First of all, we can't say that it's a matter, it's not a matter of lack of funding, lack of resources, when in the midst of, you know, sweep this, these large sweeps and getting rid of the encampments and pushing them out of the subway station, they've cut the Department of Homeless Services budget by over $600 million. So clearly there is a deliberate effort here not to provide them with the resources they need. Further, if you actually speak into these outreach groups and the homeless people that are speaking up, because there are many, many homeless advocates like the homeless hero in New York City, and they talk about it, they're turned away. There was a woman who lost uh, all of her possessions and where she sleeps when they destroyed this, uh, destroyed the encampments recently. She tried to go to a detox center and she was turned away because they said she needs a mailing address for a bed. And that's similar, so they get into similar problems trying to get into the shelters. How is a homeless person gonna have a mailing address? So it's not that these people are just choosing to do drugs or that they don't want help. They're being turned away actively. So that's what's happening there. And Amy, I think, you know, obviously, you know, mental health people, me mental health help for people is a good thing. But I think blaming this upsurge in homelessness on mental health, it kind of lacks some, uh, it's, it's not a satisfying explanation because the mental health problems in our country have been, you know, fairly stable over the last several decades. You know, I think... Oh. Actually, I think it became much worse, especially during the lockdown, e even for people who own homes or, or rent. I, yeah. uh, and, and, and so, you know, I, yes, I actually, rent. I do that, blame that's, that's the I fact. That's where I think the, yeah. Well, I, I do blame the fact that money is, is not being uh, put as a priority into facilities that are needed um, in this area. Because let's go back to Las Vegas. During the lockdown, what was deemed essential? The building of the Allegiant football stadium for the Raiders. Okay, uh, so that cost $1.9 billion, and $750 million of that was actually from taxpayer dollars and, and uh, municipal bonds. So when there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, no, for, yeah, sure. ab ab absolutely. But, and I think that, yeah, there has been an uptick in kind of uh, mental health problems as a result of the pandemic, but not the types of severe mental health illness that, that you see 
on the street. So I really think it's more about just the, the cost of housing. That's, yes. Yes. that's, that's the thing that has really changed over the last several years. Eli, I mean, I mean, you know, you know, this population a lot more intimately than I do. What's, what's your assessment of what's changed in recent years? I agree. I think the lockdown is relevant when you think about people losing their jobs, people losing their businesses, people being evicted from their homes. That obviously has a direct correlation on the homeless population. But no, I don't think it's exclusively mental health is to blame. I think it has something to do with the fact that New York City has an astronomical cost of living. Even what we call affordable housing is not affordable. If you actually look at the affordable housing lottery market in New York City, they're more expensive. They are far more expensive and the income requirements are more expensive than what I as a lawyer currently makes or affords in paying my current rent, let alone homeless people and people that are below the poverty line in New York City. So I think the lockdown is relevant, but not for mental health purposes, but because of poverty. When we think of homelessness, the first thing we should think of is people cannot afford housing. And I mean, I'm just I'm just quickly Googling here, though, like we got D.C. got 20 million, 19 million in uh, COVID stimulus money to, to help the homeless. There's a there's a five billion dollar program nationwide. There's a $350 million program locally. There's hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on this problem, even just in D.C. And it's not, and, and yet it, the pro, it's more out of control than ever. It's just, it's just government incompetence. It's just, maybe it's, it's doesn't. Yeah, a lot of people are like, it's disregard. That it's, yeah. that, it's disregard. That, yeah. yeah, it's disregard. Yeah. You know, they've been allowed to perpetuate this myth that, you know, they're trying to protect New Yorkers. And even just saying that protecting New Yorkers from homeless people excludes them as though they are not New Yorkers themselves. So that is problematic in the first place. But they present it as though they're protecting New Yorkers. That's why they're ridding homeless people of the street. You're not getting rid of them. They're still there. They have nowhere to be. So you, you still have homeless people. So what it really is, is robbing uh, Manhattan and rich, rich New Yorkers of what they deem as an eyesore, because it's not it's not a coincidence that there are homeless people all all around New York City in every borough, but the vast majority of where these sweeps are occurring are in Manhattan. Just like when the pandemic happened and they were housing uh, homeless people in the hotels and the empty, nice, vacant buildings, and then you saw rich Manhattan people rally to have them removed. So this has nothing to do with protecting New Yorkers. It have anything to do with safety. It has everything to do with just removing them from our visibility. And additionally, you know, yes, there is uh, millions of dollars being spent, and in other places they get stimulus money. But in New York City, what we're looking at is an over $600 million cut our homeless services. Yeah, and, and Nevada has a surplus, actually, Robbie, now that you're talking about the breakdown of all the money that was divvied out to states. And, you know, we find that homeless people are actually being, um, they're being shuffled from state to state. Yeah. So then that way you don't have to look at them or else the money's being used to put dividers exactly. on, on bus benches, you know, so that way they can't sleep on them. I mean, that's not the answer either. Yeah. Right. Mm. Right, there's a lot of money not being spent well. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't. There's a lot of money being a lot of money being spent to hide them from us, right. but not Correct. to give them any help or the resources that they need. Right. Well, Alaya and Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll have more rising right after this. This week, a former Vanderbilt nurse was convicted of negligent homicide for giving a patient the wrong medication, which subsequently led to the patient's death. This is in 2017. She allegedly gave an elderly patient paralyzing medication instead of sedation for a routine MRI scan. The nurse, Rodonda Vaught, is now facing up to six years in prison. This comes as the nursing industry is facing a crisis of unprecedented proportions, partially due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's also due to an uptick in violence towards healthcare professionals, 
Author of Goose News on Substack, Meryl Goosner, writes, Officials at healthcare institutions, which face a severe nurse shortage due to the escalating number of early retirements, fear the headline-grabbing case will only make it more difficult to find credentialed nurses willing to fill their open slots. Yeah. yeah. So this is an interesting story. Uh, I, I don't know what you think about it. I Probably I, I share the concern that, uh, well, well, A, we just have to, who cares about the implications? We have to discuss right. the actual case. Right. Uh, you know, mistakenly giving someone the wrong Medicaid is, is terribly sad. This woman, you know, should not work as a nurse anymore because of this. Um, a, a, if it was, you know, truly a mistake and she wasn't, you know, drinking or something, I, right. I would, I would have, I would not be super inclined to send her to prison for that. What, right. what is your thing? Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, we have, so mistakes happen. Yeah. People make mistakes, what, you know, at, at home and at work. Sometimes a mistake can lead to a tragic result. If she had, and sometimes a mistake, and most of the mistakes we commit don't lead to a tragic result. Mm-hmm. If she had accidentally grabbed ibuprofen, mm-hmm. now the poor woman who had at, requested the sedation medication would have then had you know, an anxious experience in, while going through the MRI because she didn't get the sedation. Instead, she got the uh, ibuprofen. But she wouldn't have died. But the nurse would have committed the same act. You, you know what I mean? Like she, she, it's, it, you know, she just right. happened to grab right. a, a medication. Right. That, there was no malice. There was no... And, it, it, it's, and she, wasn't, she hadn't made some other more... Right. I brought up the drinking because right. Right, if, you, if you get drunk right. and then get behind the wheel of a car and you kill someone, I think there's greater, you, you right. bear more moral responsibility right. for than if, you just, if you're just in a car crash and it's just, you know, you didn't see the light just or make, something. Just make a mistake. Yeah. And we also have a, you know, you can, you can sue for malpractice. Yeah. Like that we have ways of resolving this. Doctors yeah. make mistakes a lot. Uh, if every time a doctor made a mistake the prosecutor came in how many doctors do you think we would have and even yeah. the even the malpractice stuff right. i think is goes way too far it's a giveaway to trial attorneys a population i don't like very much right. and it drives a lot of bad decisions it drives bad decisions it drives up the cost of medical care because doctors have to have ins- malpractice insurance and there are fewer doc we don't have enough doctors we don't have enough nurses so this, so that, this gets into the broader implications of this right. this kinds of thing discourages uh, people from getting into these fields, like it, we, we can't make right. the perfect can't be the enemy of the good, right? Well, you don't want mistakes like this, but like people will suffer and die if there aren't enough doctors and nurses, right? And the woman has made multiple, you know, tearful appearances, you right. know, I'm apologizing, sure saying that she, you know this is something that she's going to live with, yeah, you know, for the rest of her life. I don't understand what society gains uh, by no. by throwing her in a cage for six years. They already took away her nursing license, which okay, yeah. sure. Uh, but right, what 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 is what is gained by that? At the same time, if she were a police officer who had qualified immunity, then it would basically be impossible, unless there was some, like you said, mm-hmm. some intentional uh, act behind what they had done. A, a police officer who kills someone in the line of duty is is usually going to get get off, mm-hmm. even if they pull the trigger. Yep. Like oh, and and even if it was a mistake. They, they, there, are, there are so many different protections for people in their position yep. uh, that, that don't apply to her. And then 
They'll yeah. be back on the yeah. job. They won't even lose their job. <laughs> right. They're, they're two, two weeks, a little right. investigation or something. Right. And then finally, you know, and according to the reporting, we know about this because she registered it as a mistake that she made. We, we want all of the mistakes that are made in the course of practicing medicine to be recorded, analyzed, and then, st- and, and then corrected for. Right. And apparently there had been some serious problems with the way that medication was stored at this hospital. The hospital claims that they cleared up all of those problems like a week before this happened. So they say that you can't blame us for this. However, the way that they would, let's say that's true. We're not sure if it is. But let's say that's true. The way that they figured out that they were having problems with the way they were storing medicine is from basically from nurses flagging it for people, saying, hey, this, this mistake was made here. You need to do this. Let's fix it this way. No nurse at this point has any incentive to be honest about a mistake that was made at this point, because if they are, they're just then incriminating themselves and throwing themselves in prison. Right. And so you, you, you've made everybody less safe and you've exacerbated the nursing shortage all to imprison somebody who already feels Right. And what is the goal of horrible. prison? What, to punish someone? It's just, I see, I don't, I don't think right. prison should be, I don't think the main purpose is Punitive. The, the right. purpose should be to keep us safe. We have to lock up people who are an active threat to society who we think might stab someone or shoot someone or rape someone if they were out on the street. And then it's a lot of people, and they got to be put away. Absolutely. But someone in this case, there, there's no likelihood she harms anyone. Or she's not going to be a nurse anymore, and, and hmm. she shouldn't be a nurse anymore. But, you know, why lock her up, too? It just doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right, yeah. Who, who is she going to hurt? Right, I, yeah. As just a person, who's our prisons now are struggling. crowded enough. We oh, we incarcerate so many people. It's so costly. We want don't don't people want to pay less for stuff? Don't they want more money in their own pockets? We we have to you know we're like on several levels raising costs of things because we lock too many people up. We sue too many people in all these various fields. That adds up. We all pay for that. A couple people get really rich from it, the trial lawyers, and the prison industrial complex. And the rest of us are poorer because of it. Yeah, and nurses are leaving the profession in droves. Yeah, uh, the pandemic was just brutal on them, uh, and because and, you know, and it, it becomes this vicious cycle. You show up for work. It's you're understaffed, and there's and you're you're no, you normally have let's say seventy percent capacity. Now you're at a hundred percent capacity. So now you're extra understaffed. So it makes your work that much more miserable. So then you quit, and so the people who remain are then that much more understaffed. And then you see, oh, somebody made a, a mistake on a shift and is now going to prison? Yeah. That, my, you're, you're, that, that goes into your calculus. You were already thinking, like, do I really want to be in this yeah. anymore? Plus, you know, we're an angry society. And if you talk to nurses, they, they have not been treated well yeah. throughout the course of the pandemic either. At the very beginning, uh, they were treated as heroes and, and given the adulation that they deserved. That wore off really quickly, and, and it started becoming a shoot-the-messenger type of thing. Like a lot of people who were angry about all of the different pandemic politics would take it out on nurses. And so, so many nurses are like, you know what? I don't get paid enough for this. Yeah. People have um, frustrating experience. Nobody wants to be in the hospital. It's a, it's a, whole, it's a right. frustrating place <laughs> right. to be. You take out your frustration on the staff. You know, some, some places have better staff. Some people have worse staff. I'm, I'm sure some 
people, just like people in any sector, are doing the bare minimum, or they're you know more unfriendly with patients and other people. You know, it's a di- different experiences everywhere. Um, but but it's going to get worse if it's more right. expensive, harder to get to become a nurse. I tend to think whatever the the you know the med uh, med school process, the educational process, the credentialing process for nurses and doctors, uh, I, I tend to think it should be easier. Probably, or probably there's too much credential going it's into. Tough. I, I know yeah. it's I, obviously you need competent people who understand medicine, or you'd have more mistakes like this. Right. But, but although it, but even if you, if you have a handful more mistakes and a bunch more nurses and you're doctors, gonna, you're going to save lives will be anyway. Safer. Right. That's what people don't understand. Right. <laughs> like a true. handful more mistakes, as crazy as that sounds, mm-hmm. would be worth it if we, we had many, 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 many more people getting care that they need urgently because people aren't so spooked about going into this profession because it isn't as daunting. Right, because not getting care is something that, you know, if there's no nurse who can get right. to you in time to change change the medic medicine, change the bag, whatever, and that sends you plummeting, that you you can't necessarily sue over that. Well, and, and people are people are choosing, they're delaying to to make to visit the doctor for. Oh yeah, I was supposed to get a checkup this year, right? About that thing. Yeah, I'll go next year. It's it's probably a headache at the yeah. at the hospital right now. And and mm-hmm. people will die because of that yeah. because they didn't they didn't get the treatment. They didn't have the checkup. Yeah. Uh, because they know what a miserable situation it is there right now. Yeah. So get your checkups. Get them. <laughs> yeah. We'll have more rising right after this. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, everyone is talking about a new world order. What does that even mean? What will the new world order look like? Who will control it? What has been touted as a right-wing conspiracy theory for the past few decades is now just loosely falling out of the mouths of global leaders everywhere. But before we get to the various world leaders touting a new world order, including Biden, Putin, Xi Jinping, the World Economic Forum, and others, let's talk about the people claiming it's a big conspiracy theory. The Anti-Defamation League categorizes the phrase New World Order under extremism, terrorism, and bigotry. They define it as, quote, a term used to refer to a right-wing conspiracy theory that became popular among anti-government extremists from the 1990s onwards. New World Order conspiracists believe that a tyrannical socialist one-world conspiracy has already taken over most of the planet and schemes to eliminate the last bastion of freedom, the United States, with the help of collaborators within the government. Through repressive measures, as well as manufactured crises such as terrorist attacks and pandemics, the globalist conspirators seek to eliminate dissent and to disarm Americans so that the New World Order can move in and enslave them. New World Order conspiracists also commonly believe that hundreds of concentration camps have been built in the U.S. ready to house dissenters, that the government will declare martial law, possibly on a pretext such as responding to a terrorist attack, and that the government will engage in mass gun confiscations. That sounds nuts, right? But if we rephrase it with with fewer charged words, for example, let's replace tyrannical and socialist with a authoritarian, change enslave with control, and swap out putting dissenters into concentration camps with something like silencing them on social media. It suddenly doesn't sound that insane. During the pandemic, many of us lost our freedoms. And in the recent era, we've seen dissenters put in jail, like Julian Assange and various protesters. Now, despite the ADL claiming the idea of a new world order as a conspiracy theory touted by conspiracy theorists, interestingly, numerous world leaders have been throwing the idea around. 
If you remember just a few days ago, Biden was talking about a new world order forming. Here he is. You know, we are at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy. Not just the world economy, in the world. It occurs every three or four generations. As one of as the uh, one of the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 60, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946. And uh, since then, we established a liberal world order, and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people died, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to there's going to be a new world order out there. And we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. So anyway. Now, immediately, elite media rolled their collective eyes and said, oh, great. His innocent use of a phrase is just fodder for conspiracy theorists. Okay, maybe. But then just these past few days, the World Government Summit convened in Dubai. It's a summit similar to the World Economic Forum. In fact, the two organizations are closely tied and the key organizers are also members and young global leaders within the WEF. The two organizations are similar in that they both gather together the rich and the powerful to discuss the world's problems and how to solve them. This one is put on by a group of Emirati government officials. And this year's 2022 summit took on an eye-raising title. It's a video. And the title of this session, are we ready for a new world? I'm going to run it back. Okay. Here we go. And the title of this session, are we ready for a new world order? Well, even Klaus Schwab ran a commercial at the summit touting a new world order. Hold on. We're going to take it from the video because the video is low and then we'll come back to you on camera. Three, two, one. And the title of this session, are we ready for a new world order? Well, even Klaus Schwab ran a commercial at the summit touting a new world order. Take a look at this. I see a future where the internet is available for free for everyone. And that means the location of power is going to shift. Decentralization of power structures everywhere may be the beginning of that shift in finance, in political power. We have to uphold our responsibility, which we have towards the next generation. Okay, so now we have Joe Biden, Emirati leaders, and Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum all talking about the new world order forming. What next? Well, it turns out the Chinese and the Russians have been talking about it as well. In fact, the two nations just got together yesterday and declared that they're building a new democratic world order together. And now I just want to say that as much as I find much of the propaganda spewed by mainstream media false regarding these two countries, one thing is accurate. These are not free nations. They crack down on dissent, jail dissidents. China even controls how many kids you can have. A new world order run by these two sounds a lot like what has been touted by the people labor, labeled conspiracy theorists. Yet here we are. And with China buying out everyone in every industry, it raises concerns as to how much influence they have over the world. 
I think it's time to pay attention to the conspiracy theorists, especially as Russia and China force the world away from the petrodollar and into the new petroruble or petroyuan. Imagine a new world order under China. Would it be a tyrannical socialist world using repressive measures, eliminating dissent and disarming its citizens? Would there be concentration camps housing dissenters? Doesn't sound so nuts anymore now, does it? And though I do think China and their ability to buy up influence is a problem that we should be addressing, I'd like us to think of another possibility. There's a possibility that a new world order isn't run by any government at all. We've seen transitions from monarchies and dictators to democracies, but maybe the next iteration isn't a government run by the people, but a technocracy instead, or at least big run by big corporations in conjunction with big tech. Now, we've seen the power big tech has had on nearly every aspect of our society. They've been able to ban the president of the United States, deplatform and censor news. Bill Gates has an enormous and disproportionate influence on vaccines and healthcare. Twitter and Facebook control narratives. We're all reliant on Amazon, and Jeff Bezos even owns the Washington Post. Is it possible that the next iteration of a world order is run by big tech and not by power hungry politicians? I'm not sure how it would work exactly, but I think this unknown is maybe what's possibly freaking global leaders out. It's possible these powerful elites are hosting numerous global summits about the future of the world because they're scrambling to hold on to power in an era when so much is slipping away from them to big tech instead. It's just a thought. But clearly one thing we know is things are changing and shifting and the unknown is frightening. And apparently it's not only frightening to the conspiracy theorists, it's frightening to global world leaders as well. So I, I think there's really no doubt that things are shifting. We're seeing it happen right now with this war. It's dividing up the East from the West. We've also seen over the last few years the power of big tech. I don't know what this new world order is going to look like. Um, I'll let you guys take a stab at it. I mean, what do you think? I, or do you think it's just a big conspiracy theory and everything will be the way it's been? Nothing's really going to change. Well, no, things are definitely changing and they, they can change for the worse. And I have a lot of concerns about many of the things you raised. I mean, I'm, I'm equally, if not more concerned about hegemony of China and Russia, uh, them working together. Yeah, I, I do not want though either of those countries to, to replace the U.S. as the global world power, the global standard. That would result in human rights abuses, free speech abuses, uh, political abuses that are far worse than those occurring uh, under the the U.S. I, I guess the uh, but and and this isn't to, to disagree with you because you pointed this out in, in your radar that you know it's not it's it's while there are kernels of truth to many conspiracy theories, you know what what the the really intense people who claim uh, the new world order what they mean is all of these forces like there's a man behind the curtain or there's many men behind the curtain right they're all meeting at a secret meeting. Uh, you know, not the, the, the people behind the political leaders and the corporate executives. They all get together and they all worship Satan and they're all like having <laughs> orgies with children and they decide to like do evil thing like that level of it is not true, because as we see, many of these forces are actually at odds. Like we're, we're at odds with China. The, the true New World Order conspiracy theorists think us and China and Big City, like everyone, the, the people in charge of everything are getting together and, you know, high fiving and, and that kind of thing. And that part of it is, is going too far because a lot of these forces are at odds with each other. But that doesn't mean you're wrong about the, you know, the dangers of, uh, of, of evil forces or forces that want to restrict our freedoms, seizing opportunities like the pandemic, like terrorism, like other things to further restrict our freedoms. It's a, it's a huge concern. Yeah, and I think just because there was a particular set of conspiracy theorists who had this satanic kind of notion about this secret 
global new world order that was going to be formed doesn't mean that as a entire globe we have to retire the phrase new world mm -hmm. order like there is a world order and like biden actually i think he said it fairly well every three or four generations you do get a new world order you know after 1990 when the soviet union collapsed that created a new world order because there was no longer this kind of you know superpower against superpower with China figuring out what its role was. There was a different world order before World War II. There was a different world order before World War I. There will continue to be different right. world orders. And when there are new ones, we'll, they will be new world orders. I want a new world order based in universal uh, free expression rights, political freedoms, property rights, accountable, limited, democratic government. That would be a great new world order. But uh, yeah, I don't know and if that's I, what we're going to get. <laughs> right. And I don't think we can go retcon the old one and say, well, they predicted you know, concentration camps in the United States, and now we're getting tech censorship. So that's kind of the same. I don't think those are or even prisons. Co comparable things. Well, if they predicted you know, mass incarceration, yes, we definitely have mass incarceration. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I will point out about world orders, past world orders, current world orders, and future world orders, it's all based on who has the money. So if you hold the money and you've got all the riches, then you're the one who gets to be in power. And I think where this becomes more more of a conspiring, um, you know, sort of, I guess, thing going on, not not necessarily to the level that, you know, some of the conspiracies that you're talking about. But the fact is, is that you've got a lot of very powerful governments and people buying up industries or heavily investing. So even though there are some that are at odds, like we see the U.S. government being against the Chinese government, uh, and, and the governments run very differently. China is much more controlled of its population. That to me is very, I don't, I wouldn't want to live like that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that the Chinese have been able to buy up a ton of influence here in the United States. They own a lot of farmland. They own investments into nearly every single industry we have. And we've seen that play out. We've seen it play out publicly on the stage, such as the NBA, right, where they can't criticize certain things because they're so heavily uh, they're, they, they're so heavily reliant on China. So that is where it does become there's these mm -hmm. actors inside of even our own government or our own our own ecosystem here in the United States, big money players that are taking money from these others. And they are in a way then kind of colluding to make more money. Right. They're all right. in bed right. together to just keep well enriching themselves. Right. And that is where but they they're do not meeting aligned. at the League of Doom headquarters. Right. <laughs> to to worship Satan and do all the things. The Masonic the maybe, maybe, right, maybe not that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't one, know. I don't know either way. I don't think so, though. <laughs> although one 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 perhaps relevant amendment to that is that who has the guns off also matters and often has mattered yes. more. Yes. Per, the Persian Empire, for instance, had all of the money. They were the one, richest empire on the planet at the time, these barbaric Europeans had all the guns and, and had better military tactics. Well, there's there's well, a great scene out, in, uh, I think it's the premiere episode of the second season of Game of Thrones, where uh, Littlefinger is talking with Queen Cersei and says, knowledge is power, because he has all the knowledge. And she says, no, power is power. And she orders her <laughs> guardsmen to, to behead him right there. And then she says, no, I changed oh, my nice. mind. No, you don't have to. Yeah. It's a little demonstration yeah. that yeah, you have a lot of influence yep. and money and wealth, but I have the legitimate use of violence on my side. Yeah, right. China, yeah. China, well, yeah. China's, and China's well, going to find out how much their store of treasury bills is worth if it really comes to a conflict. For her, but. Yeah. That's why also China doesn't arm their population. And, th and then, you know, so now you're getting into the territory of why so many of the, you know, in the New World Order, yeah. the conspiracy theorists by the ADL say, 
a lot of it is to disarm the population yeah. because a disarmed population has less and power now you're sounding like one of the right-wing libertarian people we need an armed uh, uh, an armed citizenry kim that's something i believe I, no hey listen i'm a i'm a second amendment person that's yeah. one thing that where i deviate from the left from is i've always been much more of a second amendment person. u.s is really so. slow walking <laughs> that disarming of the population <laughs> thing yeah that's true we have like 30 guns for every person at this point All right. Well, thank you very much, Kim. And we'll have more rising right after this. We're taking a deeper dive into some important races happening in Pennsylvania this year. Brand new exclusive polling data from the Hill and Emerson College shows State Senator Doug Mastriano leads the GOP gubernatorial primary with just 16 percent of respondents saying they'd vote for him. Mastriano, a Trump loyalist, is currently evading questioning from the House January 6th committee. He still, however, is waiting for that coveted endorsement from the former president. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman continues to lead the state's Democratic Senate primary with 33 percent of the vote. However, that's with 37 percent of respondents still undecided. Joining us to weigh in on the data and what we might be able to expect to see in the state of Pennsylvania in 2022 and 2024, Jonathan Tamari, national political reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, thanks for joining us. So let's you know, start with, uh, with Fetterman and Lamb. Obviously, we saw reporting recently that suggested, I think, to us that right, the Lamb uh, campaign is very, is very spooked or maybe was, I don't know if they were taken aback by Fetterman's uh, popularity. But, you know, what, what's going on there and, and what are they doing to kind of uh, regroup and how, how is that looking like it will shake out? Yeah, I think the polling that we're seeing is consistent with what a lot of people have thought the race has looked like for some time now, that Fetterman is the most well-known candidate on the Democratic side and that he's got a significant lead because of that. Uh, There's been a number of polls that have shown him with double-digit leads, and really there hasn't been much that has changed that. And so on one hand, that should be kind of concerning to Connor Lamb and and Malcolm Kenyatta, the other Democrat in this race, because uh, there's not that much time left, and they need to both bring down Fetterman's approval and bring up their own approval. And Fetterman has the most money uh, with which to communicate to voters. So it makes it that much harder to accomplish both of those tasks. On the other hand, it's also not that surprising that things haven't changed from the baseline because the campaigns have only very recently started going on television, which is really important in a state as large as Pennsylvania. So it's not surprising we haven't seen so much movement yet, but there is not that much time left really to try to accomplish these two things and close such a large a large gap. The question is going to be, how solid is John Fetterman's support? He's the most well-known. And again, so, so that it explains some of his support. And the question is, once he starts getting attacked, once people start trying to put some negatives on him, does that support hold? How solid is it? And I think we'll find out in the coming weeks. It feels like the two things, two things would have to, have to happen together, and that would be some consolidation by the non-Fetterman candidates plus a massive influx of kind of super PAC money. And Connor Lamb's super PAC recently did call on, you know, wealthy donors to pump a lot of money into the super PAC to take Fetterman down. Any indication that those donors are going to kick in at the level that would be needed? And and what's your sense of whether the rest of the field is willing to consolidate against Fetterman, kind of the way that Democrats did for Biden against Bernie during the presidential we're not seeing that consolidation yet. Um, Lamb is winning a lot of insider support within Pennsylvania. Uh, he's got 
the Democratic Party of Philadelphia, for example, endorsed him recently. He's gotten the endorsement of some significant labor unions. But there are still other pockets of support. You know, Malcolm Kenyatta has, has scored some pretty significant endorsements himself. The National Party, very notably, is not weighing in, at least not to this point, which is a big change from in the past. Uh, so they're not kind of putting the national donors on alert to come in and, and support Connor Lamb over John Fetterman. And that's a big difference because the National Party did play a huge role in deciding the 2016 primary. So we're not seeing that yet. And that is a challenge for the super PAC of Lamb to really raise that money. Because when you talk to donors and people who've worked on super PACs, they say that these big donors, you know, they might support a Democrat against a Republican. But if they're coming from outside the state, they're less likely to come in and pick a particular Democrat against another particular Democrat unless they really get a signal from party leaders. And, and we haven't seen that on a national level yet. And so let's talk about uh, Mastriano, who's leading uh, as the Republican candidate for governor, uh, a very, you know, Trumpian MAGA figure, from what I understand. D does that, um, you know, does he, just how conservative he is, how Trump loyal he is, you know, does that make him, uh, would that make him vulnerable, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a general there's there's a, there's a lot of Republicans even kind of more in the establishment lane of the Republican Party, but a lot of Republicans who look at the polling that shows Mastriano ahead, and this is kind of their nightmare scenario because he is very uh, he he has, he's on the fringes of some issues. He's really made his name big most recently in kind of uh, supporting the Stop the Steal movement after the 2020 election and really raising doubts about that election. Uh, and there are a lot, and he's got a loyal following because of that. But there's a concern for, with Republicans that he's got a very low ceiling, that his views will not play outside of kind of the far right within Pennsylvania. But the concern that there that there is within the party is that there are so many candidates running for governor right now that 15, 20 percent support might actually be enough to win the nomination if all these candidates make it to election day. Uh, so at the moment, Mastriano has that strong base. And the concern among Republicans is that they don't know that he can grow beyond that if he is the general election candidate. So we'll see if there's another Republican that can kind of come up and consolidate the non-Mastriano lane, uh, as it were. Right. And just so our YouTube overlords are satisfied, that claim by Mastriano that the election was, <laughs> was rigged is untrue. False, false. Yes, a false claim. Don't believe it. Don't believe his They're claim. required to say that at gunpoint. Absolutely. What, what about the Republican Senate campaign? Uh, obviously, the most famous candidate in there is uh, Turkish citizen <laughs> Mehmet Oz, who uh, got into some controversy because he said he was he would not give up his Turkish. He has dual citizenship. He wouldn't give up his Turkish citizenship if he was elected. And then after, under some pressure, he said, OK, I will give up my Turkish uh, citizenship. But how, how is how is the Republican primary in the Senate race shaping up to to face to likely to face Fetterman? So it's by far the most expensive Senate race anywhere in the country. You've got a number of just ultra, ultra wealthy candidates in there. So not just Mehmet Oz, but also Dave McCormick, who until recently led the world's largest hedge fund. And McCormick and Oz have just been spending tens of millions of dollars on television, just battering each other. And according to some polling, McCormick has actually gone into the lead by painting Oz as being soft on a number of conservative positions. Uh, you know, they are clearly number one and two right now. Uh, it's a question of whether 
you know, McCormick has clearly landed some strong shots on Oz. Oz's super pack is now starting to hit back on some of McCormick's own background and his vulnerabilities. Uh, and it's a question of kind of can Oz's spending keep pace with McCormick's because McCormick not only has his own money, he's got a lot of wealthy friends that are putting money into the race to support him. Um, and then the question also becomes if those two just beat each other up for months on end, could a third Republican candidate kind of slide in as the other option if the negatives on those two get driven up so high? But right now, McCormick and Oz are the clear number one and two, depending on what poll you look like, you look at. It, it, it might tell you a different amount of separation, but those are the two front runners, and we're just waiting to see kind of, it's a money contest at the moment between those two. And how's, how's McCormick look in the general? Is he more in the Mastriano mold or more in the Glenn Youngkin mold? We think he will try to be more in the Glenn Youngkin mold. Now, he is, at the moment, really trying to kind of show his conservative bona fides, trying to appeal to those Trump voters. He's hired a number of former Trump aides, some pretty prominent people like Pope Hicks, who was a longtime Trump advisor. Um, he has brought in people like Sarah Huckabee Sanders to campaign for him. He's got endorsement from Mike Pompeo. So he's clearly trying to appeal to that Trump base and, and possibly even secure an endorsement from, from former President Trump. But, you know, he does have some of this very same advisors who advised Glenn Youngkin. He's a, a longtime, uh, you know, finance person, a guy who's worked in big business, a guy who worked in the George W. Bush administration. So there is a perception that if he can win the primary, he will try to pivot and be more in that straddle that Trump lane and traditional Republican lane if he is eventually the nominee but he's not going there yet because he's still got to win a primary. Don't break out the vest. <laughs> That's right. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Facebook parent company Meta is paying a top Republican consulting firm targeted victory to orchestrate a nationwide campaign seeking to turn the public against TikTok. This is according to Washington Post reporting. Targeted Victory's campaign includes placing letters and op-eds to the editor in major news outlets and promoting doubtful stories about TikTok trends that actually originated on Facebook. Facebook is paying the GOP firm to trash TikTok as, quote, the real threat to society. Yeah, this story was really interesting, uh, but I have a, I actually have a sort of in the middle take because I think there are I think this story was very interesting, and it, it points to some real problems. But also, it was it was an aggressively pro TikTok story, and there are like some legitimate problems with TikTok. Now, they are, they were right to point out some of the moral panics about like trends originating on TikToks that that were not real or had originated on Facebook, like like the beta teacher trend, or like these just absolutely made up. Um, you know, like stories about kids wilding out and going crazy or something that were just moral panics. And, and yes, Facebook was clearly paying this group, this influence group, to, you know, to, to promulgate that narrative. Of course, you know, corporate sabotage is something, espionage right. and sabotage is as old as time. So there's nothing actually novel about this. And the, the Washington Post story treated it as if it was like a really, oh my gosh, can we believe this is going on? When like, yeah, it's going on. But it was some untruths being told about TikTok. That said, uh, the, the, the privacy concerns about, I mean, TikTok is a Chinese company. We have a lot of concerns about China. The privacy concerns are real. Um, the national security implications are, are serious with TikTok. Uh, so it, it, like I, I, 
it, it's not the story was trying to be like, oh, TikTok's the good guys, Facebook's the clear villains, and it's it's much more complicated than that, in my view. I don't know. What did you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I agree that I, obviously I think it's it should be no surprise that companies do things like this against one another, right, in order to get an edge. Like, I, I mean, we see politicians do it. I would imagine that companies do it as well. But um, I and I agree with you. I agree that TikTok is something that when you're especially especially entities that that are coming out of a country like China, where they have much more control over every company within their society, uh, within their country. So that that means that the government is able to get in there and control things a bit more. And, and, and we see that young kids, I mean, I'm not on TikTok much. I know you guys aren't really either. So we're, we're like a bunch of old fogies trying to figure out like, how bad is TikTok for young kids? But if, it, if they are, you know, if it is like Instagram, where it is indoctrinating them in a way, right, on how to behave, what to like, what to wear, yeah. what's trending, what's cool, if a government is able to shape that, that is, uh, and it's not our government, I think that obviously is, yeah. to me, problematic, yeah. would be concerning. I, well, I actually kind of think there, it. I think it has certain improvements for my limited kind of looking at it. There are things about it in, in the whole, uh, like versus Instagram and how Instagram is harmful for teen girls, you know, which we've talked about a, a lot. I've, I've looked at that question a lot. I think TikTok has some improvements or advantages over Instagram in that respect. It seems a little bit more uh, like creating a TikTok is sort of a creative thing. And in the way, like there's more ownership of it and it's more almost an art project than just like retouching a photo of yourself for Instagram. Uh, like and very much just right. playing into like a certain kind of unrealizable beauty standard that, that seems to be the issue with Instagram. Right. But you could yeah. poison. I mean, you could like really poison a society if you wanted to, if you had control over their social media that their young kids were getting all you know into. I mean, you could feed them, for example, just uh, like, uh, you know, like a bunch of Cardi B. I, mean, I don't know. You could like put in front of them stuff right. that that makes the kids so, oh, I want to be like that. And then your society, you could shape and say, now we're going to feed our kids you know, uh, that it's better to be good at engineering and math. And we're going to teach their kids that it's better to be, you know, d dancers. And I, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. not, I'm not, I'm not disparaging those, those, um, those fields at all. I'm just saying that if you tell one society, this is what you all should grow up to be. And then you tell another yeah. society, and this is what you should all grow up to be. You could really shift a generation of thinking yeah, it, on it, social media. Right. It'd be like if, you know, Radio Free Europe or whatever, you know, whatever, like the American kind of propaganda media outfit was, was in the, in the hands of every single like Chinese kid. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary. That'd be great. Amount. Maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> but, you know, well, be, I'd say be careful what would happen after the collapse mm. of right. the CCP. Uh, but yes, but so, it's an extraordinary amount of power to cede to another, to a, an adversarial government. Right. It's wild. Uh, and, and it's an extraordinarily powerful tool. Like the algorithm is just absolutely amazing in what it's able to yeah. do. But I do, yeah. I do like to see competition and fight. I mean, this kind of uh, corporate sabotage actually shows that there is 
competition between these companies to some degree, which I think can only be beneficial because I want them to have different policies. I want them to try out different policies. I want them to be feuding with each other rather than all in lockstep about what you should be allowed to say, all having identical content moderation policies. I think it's healthier if they experiment with different pathways. We find out what works better. So I, I kind of like that they're at each other's throats. And, and it's funny, Facebook publicly will say, will point to TikTok and go, see, look, we're not a monopoly. We're not scary. Right. Here's this other company that's doing really well. And then privately, they're like, destroy them. <laughs> <laughs> Buy them. <laughs> Buy them and snuff them out. Yeah. Well, I'm sure Facebook's worried, or Meta, whatever, that, you know, I, I'm sure they're worried that they're going to become the new MySpace. I mean, it's. Mm-hmm. It, I feel like it's already kind of going in that direction. Not I very am, many absolutely. people are using Facebook. Which does, which speaks to, and I've, I've said this, you know, a couple times that part of the reason I, I'm I'm reticent to wade in with legislation or reg, you know regulation for these companies is that, <clears throat> excuse me, there is more change in in this sector. There is a lot of change historically. I think change still could happen, and I wouldn't want to accidentally entrench the ones we have now by constructing some kind of really poorly thought out regulation. Although what if there's a middle the, what if there's a middle position that allowing them to make all of these anti-competitive acquisitions softened them up and was actually bad for them? Like by allowing them to just buy up Instagram, buy up WhatsApp, buy up all these competitors instead of having to internally compete against them is the thing that yeah. created the sloth that will then uh, be the, be their demise. Certainly if you're going to do one change or one regular the preventing them further acquisitions seems like a more defensible one than some of the other things on the table yeah. to me. Right. And, you know, it's, it's often right-wing, you know, free market people who are the most vociferous advocates of this antitrust stuff. I know. They, I've pointed out this hypocrisy on many occasions. Yeah, I have too. <laughs> <laughs> well, aren't you two just coming together from both sides? There you go. Isn't this we wonderful? are. <laughs> yeah. We are indeed. But uh, we still got to get to Rising going on TikTok. They're, they've been, it's there. You can find it. Um, yep. You know, I'm, we're all for diversifying what platforms we're using. I think, given recent developments, <laughs> wretched big, big uh, tech platforms. Yeah. Anyway, tomorrow on Rising Hill, reporter Hannah Trudeau will detail why some Democratic candidates are steering clear of the term "progressive" altogether, despite campaigning on agenda items traditionally associated with the term. And filmmaker and activist Abby Martin will break down her experience with big tech's crackdown on left-wing media. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And get us on TikTok, but also, if you like to listen to us while you're on the go, we are available on podcast. So be sure to check that out. Find us everywhere. That's at Twitter, TikTok, podcasts, YouTube. You can find us everywhere. Thanks so much for watching, guys. Bye-bye. We are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Over now. Bye.